for listening to our 2021 season of the Miso TV podcast. Miso TV is a video program adapted to audio only for this podcast, produced by the Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, a national 501c3 nonprofit organization. The Mesothelioma Applied Research Foundation, or Meso Foundation for short, is an organization that provides patient support and education services, funds peer-reviewed research, and advocates for increased funding of mesothelioma research. This 2021 season of programming is made possible with the support of our generous sponsors. They are MRHFM, Bellican Fox, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novacure, Merck, The Gorey Law Firm, and Early Lucarelli Sweeney and Meisenkoten. Visit CureMiso.org to learn more about the Miso Foundation and about Miso TV. Today, we are joined by nurse practitioner Michelle Turner and by Dr. Jerushka Naidu to discuss side effects of immunotherapy. So, uh, Dr. Naidu and Michelle Turner, thank you so much for agreeing to be part of our Miso TV. Um, this is our Second, uh, second season of Viso TV, and we're trying to bring interesting topics to the community um, to help keep patients and their families uh, prepare themselves for some of the new therapies or to manage some of the therapies they may be on. So, nothing to do. I chased you all the way to Ireland. So, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Jerush Kanadu. I'm a thoracic medical oncologist. Um, I work here at Beaumont Hospital in Dublin, which is one of the major teacher hosp teaching hospitals in Dublin, Ireland. I'm the National Lung Cancer Lead um, for Ireland through Cancer Trials Ireland, and I'm an Adjunct Assistant Professor um, of Oncology at Johns Hopkins, um, former compadre of my other panelist, um, Michelle Turner, and uh, work very closely between uh, Ireland and the Hopkins team in the US. I have a research interest in immunotherapy, for lung cancer and thoracic malignancies. And specifically, I have a research interest in the side effects of immuno immunotherapy called immune-related adverse events. Thank you, nice to meet you. Um, Michelle, um, an old friend and colleague, uh, would you talk a little bit about you know, yourself and you know, what brings you to, uh, to this conversation today? Sure, um, so my name is Michelle Turner. I've been a nurse practitioner for 18 years in the field of medical oncology. Um, I had specialized in GI melanoma, um, HIV, and thoracic malignancies for the first 14 to 15 years of my career. So had a lot of experience with uh, immunotherapies and some of those diseases, specifically like melanoma. Um, I then came over to the Hopkins system and became the nurse practitioner manager for thoracic malignancies and was recently um, given a position as the um, lead solid tumor nurse practitioner manager for um, solid tumor oncology throughout the Hopkins system. Um, my specific research interest actually is in survivorship, uh, especially now with patients living longer because of these agents. And um, we actually, my, I had focused recent research uh, around um, immunotherapy, long-term immunotherapy toxicities uh, in the survivorship setting. So I'm thrilled to be here to speak with you, Mary, and my former colleague, Dr. Naidu. Um, it's just Great to be among friends. Thank you. So, you know, as you're probably both aware, um, we recently re received approval for dual inhibition in mesothelioma with immunotherapy. Um, 
And, you know, for patients who were very familiar with the side effects of chemotherapy, um, not much was known to these patients, to the patient population about, you know, immunotherapy and, uh, you know, what are some of the side effects that are being observed and how they're managed. So, um, Michelle, would you talk a little bit about, you know, your role with educating patients? Um, how do you introduce them to immunotherapy and what to watch out for? Yeah, sure. So the challenge always is, you know, when you're talking to a patient where anxiety level is high because of their diagnosis, um, really communicating effectively about the differences between chemotherapy and immunotherapy is extremely important. Although you may communicate exactly how you should regarding immunotherapy, people, it's second nature to call it chemo. And so how I usually speak with them is we talk about chemotherapy, kind of suppressing the immune system and um, causing kind of global um, decrease in the immune system to kill the cancer cells. Whereas immunotherapy is actually using your body's own immune system to help it recognize the tumor. And I think that's really important because there is always a concern if we ever have to stop therapy, oh, is my cancer care gonna be affected if I stop um, immunotherapy? And that's not necessarily the case because again, if we can train our immune system to recognize um, tumors, then it on its own, even without immunotherapy drugs on board should be able to do just that. The challenge between the two, or to, to you know, describing between the two, is that chemotherapy is very predictable. We know for years in oncology, if we give a certain regimen that about eight to 10 days, we expect to see certain side effects, certain toxicities. And then by the time they receive their next course, they should be ready to, um, they've recovered. With immunotherapy, because it's so variable and it, it's basically going off our immune system, we can see events that are, global events um, with our immune system from anywhere the day after they receive therapy to up to one to two years post. And so what do I mean by that? The, the immune system, you know, certainly keeps our body in check, but if it's overactivated, can certainly cause symptoms of, uh, you know, intense inflammation. And that really relates to people with, um, we describe it as people with autoimmune diseases, right? So why do people have rheumatoid arthritis? Because their immune system is attacking their joints, right? Um, and when we give these immunotherapy drugs, if our immune system becomes overactivated, we can see this global inflammation causing very similar side effects, you know, joint aches and pains, shortness of breath called the pneumonitis um, because there's an inflammation of the lung and inflammation of the colon called the colitis. And so constantly throughout therapy, we're making sure that we educate patients, any signs or symptoms you may feel with cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, joint aches and pains, let us know because the workup is certainly in much more detail um, than it would be for chemotherapy. And we as providers have to put on kind of our generalist thinking caps, right? We're not just in this one kind of silo of thought, you know, with people who were getting chemotherapy in the past. We're now looking at a global picture of the patient um, and having to look at many body systems in order to manage these people. Thank you. Um, Dr. Nadu, in the older adult, um, you know, we've always thought of uh, traditionally that as people age, their immune systems perhaps aren't as strong as they were, um, you know, in their early adulthood. Is there any reason to think that um, older adults will have less side effects or will perhaps have uh, a less effective treatment with immunotherapy? 
thanks for that. That's a great question. So actually, uh, some work has been done looking to see whether older adults may have different responses to immunotherapy. And really there's data on both sides of the coin. Um, some data suggesting mm -hmm. that perhaps older individuals may have this phenomenon called immunosenescence, where their immune cells are a little bit older and perhaps less attuned to being stimulated from immunotherapy the same way um, perhaps a younger patient would. But larger studies actually have not borne out that hypothesis. And it does appear that the majority of the data would suggest that an older individual is, is just as likely to benefit from immunotherapy as a younger individual. Um, similar hypothesis um, was, was investigated as to whether older uh, patients may have higher rates of immunotherapy side effects. And similarly, data on both sides, but largely showing that their side effect profile is very similar. I think some of the things to think about with immune-related toxicities that are different and distinct from chemotherapy side effects is timing, as Michelle already mentioned. So the timing of these toxicities is not predictable. So these can occur anywhere from the same day as the treatment to, to many months and even years after treatment has started, and in some instances, after treatment has stopped. And that's quite different to traditional treatments, not even just chemotherapy, but even other treatments we give for cancer, such as targeted therapies that may be related to the timing. So that's an important thing to explain to patients that really once your immune system is sort of turned on, it may flare up really at any time. The other thing is variety. You know, there are certain organ systems that appear, you know, to develop side effects from, from certain treatments. Immunotherapy, sure, there are, are more common areas where this occurs, but really variety is the order of the day. Any organ system of the body can become inflamed and uh, we may treat uh, generally with immunosuppressive medicines, but there may be specific medicines that help specific organs that become inflamed. And um, you know, your oncologist and their associated teams will have to deploy all of their different expertise to manage some of these more nuanced side effects. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've been paying attention to the literature and I know that, you know, with mesothelioma, this is sort of a young treatment. So in this field, we're still learning a little bit about, you know, a, a little bit more about these side effects. But you know, if we go back into melanoma and we start to ex extrapolate some of the data, it looks like now um, that even if patients um, have some of these side effects, that once they're managed and dealt with, sometimes they can be rechallenged with uh, with immunotherapy. Um, are you seeing that in your practices as well? Yeah, I can take that. I think you know the question of rechallenge. Um, is a tricky one. And I think really all depends mm -hmm. on context. So it depends mm -hmm. on, on, I think, mainly two factors. The first would be what the toxicity is and the severity of that toxicity and how well it sort of responds to, treat, to the treatment of that toxicity. Does it completely resolve? Does the patient end up needing an extra level of immunosuppression where we are concerned that if that toxicity came back, it may pose an unacceptable risk to the patient. So, so toxicities mm -hmm. such as pneumonitis or colitis or severe ones such as myocarditis, when they occur, it's very unlikely um, when they are severe that we may want to re-challenge with treatment. Having said that, 
it does, it really plays a role as to where in a patient's treatment they are. If they are early in their disease course and they haven't received that many treatments yet and therefore have not necessarily declared themselves to be a responder, we may have a lower threshold for trying to rechallenge to assess whether the immunotherapy may benefit them. However, in other patients, where they develop a toxicity late in their treatment, maybe they've been on immunotherapy for a year or two years, the question of rechallenge is, um, is sort of less relevant because at that stage, the patient may have declared themselves already as a responder and further treatment may not actually be adding much. And I think what's really important to, to note here and really the take home message is, mm -hmm what is the optimum duration of immunotherapy? And nobody actually knows the answer to that. So for some patients, stopping immunotherapy early for toxicity may actually be the right thing to do because they may have actually received enough immunotherapy to stimulate a response. Whereas others may go on treatment for a longer time and may even need to be rechallenged. And this shows us sort of the variety and the differences in immune responses we see in different patients. Thank you. Um, Michelle, that leads to another question. Uh, when patients start immunotherapy, you know, I get a lot of questions about when can we expect a response? So I know that, um, you know, you're seeing patients in the clinic and, you know, so what do you see in your practice, Michelle? Yeah. Um, it's an excellent question and, and very valid. And we've, we, I've dealt with it with my patients with melanoma as well as in thoracic malignancies, mm -hmm. because um, again, if you look at data, just comparing chemotherapy and immunotherapy, you know, if we look at chemotherapy, there's usually a pretty quick response within the first two cycles. People are feeling better, um, they're looking better and so forth. The immune system's different, right? We have this you know, there's two phases or two components of our immune system, our innate and adaptive. And, you know, where this, where immunotherapy works is really is in our adaptive immune system. So we have to almost prime it, right, with these drugs. And, mm -hmm. you know, we typically don't see responses immediately with immunotherapy. It can take as much as 12 weeks. And some of the studies, the original studies, it was nine to 12 weeks before they saw responses um, with these patients. And so, you know, a lot of times when people go and get scans, depending on if they're getting scans after two cycles, after three cycles, they may not see anything but stability and they may even see a little bit of growth until again, the, the therapy starts to catch up or the immune system starts to catch up, um, you know, against the tumor. And so it's, it's a, I think it's hard for um, oncologists um, and oncology providers, because again, we, we like to see responses as do patients. But I think if we're patient and um, we are able to manage the patient's symptoms and keep them comfortable, um, we, can, we can really uh, see a benefit. It just takes about nine to 12 weeks before we see responses. Mm -hmm. So um, is there any benefit to a PET scan versus a CT scan when you're looking for an early response? So there isn't a lot of data in that area uh, so far. I actually, mm -hmm. there is, there is a, a paper that was published in the Journal of Immunotherapy and Cancer just recently in the last two weeks, looking at something called a complete metabolic response in patients with lung cancer mm -hmm. to see if having a complete metabolic response may be associated with benefit. But that was done 
after a long period of immunotherapy when patients may have already shown a benefit from more traditional um, response assessments. I think the jury is still out on this, even in cancers where we've been giving immunotherapy for a long time, like melanoma and lung cancer, and certainly it's, it's definitely not as well known in the context of mesothelioma. There are a lot, there's a lot of work being done to see whether there are better biomarkers of response aside from mm-hmm. routine CT scans. Certainly our group at Hopkins led by work from Elsa and Agnostu and Patrick Ford and others have been looking at certain markers detectable in the blood, um, genomic markers that may tell us who's responding versus others. I think those are probably um, further along um, than PET scans at the moment, um, but watch this space. Thank you. Um, another question, something I've seen in some of the patients is that, um, you know, patients had, you know, had chemotherapy in the past, chemotherapy failed them, they progressed, they went on a pdl one inhibitor, and some of the patients, whether they actually responded or didn't respond to the pdl inhibitors, actually seemed to derive a better benefit than from the chemotherapy when chemotherapy was rechallenged. Is there any literature in that area that, you know, that points to this as a, as a phenomena? Or perhaps are we seeing a late recurrence, I mean, a, a late um, response to immunotherapy? Sorry, just to clarify the question. So you're saying in patients who had right. chemotherapy before, when they get right. immunotherapy, they respond better. Is that, is that the question? No, actually, the, the question is, I've, I have, I've had a few patients who had chemotherapy, they failed their chemotherapy, went on to an immunotherapy, some responded to immuno, some didn't. And then when they were re-challenged with chemotherapy, some of them um, had unexpected, very good responses to that chemotherapy. And I wonder, is that a response actually to the chemotherapy or is that really just a late response to immunotherapy? I think that's a great point. You know, actually, um, some groups were looking at that specific question in melanoma. My mm-hmm. my understanding is that this was not, th- it wasn't borne out as a hypothesis that the immunotherapy was somehow engendering a late effect. I think what, what folks were thinking is maybe immunotherapy has in some way primed um, Mm-hmm. a patient's system to now respond to subsequent chemotherapy. Um, that is certainly something that has been looked at. I don't believe that it's been borne out in larger data sets, but it will be interesting mm-hmm. to look at even in, in patients with mesothelioma where we don't, we don't know this just yet. Right. Because I think also, you know, um, you know, patients, you know, put so much hope into one therapy and sometimes it's hard for them to, you know, go to the next therapy with, with any sense of optimism. So, you know, I think knowing that this is a possibility that not to be discouraged, that sometimes it takes multiple different types of treatments before you may see a response or, you know, sort of get ahead of the game. Uh, it's, you know, it's a tough disease to treat and, you know, people are, you know, really um, with very few options. So, You know, after chemotherapy and immunotherapy, you know, we're into clinical trials and trying to move patients along. Um, And Mary, I think, going back to, I was going to say just one thing to add. And and again, I don't know, um, you know, I've seen this in other diseases as well as with other therapies is it just speaks to the heterogeneity of tumors as well. Right. And so you can Mm -hmm. treat with one type of therapy, get a response, but then there's another kind of 
clonal group that's developing that may not be responding. Mm -hmm. So then you switch that re then responds and then, you know, it's under control. And so there, the actual response may not be necessarily, um, you know, it could potentially be because of a trigger of immunotherapy, but just that you're dealing with a different clonal group because of subsequent treatments that you're kind of seeing this, um, the, the re this response change. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That's another interesting way to look at it as well. So, so many, you know, so many unknowns. Um, in terms of immunotherapy and some of the uh, more common side effects that you see, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, um, what you see and when it's time to refer a patient on to a specialist to, uh, to deal with some of these side effects? Yeah. I think um, I can take that I one. I was going to say, you're, you're speaking with the expert all the way from Ireland. I'm deferring her to this one, this one. No, I Perfect. think, you know, it, to be you. truthful, mm -hmm. I think that's a very nuanced question. And, um, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, the experiences in academic centers, in community centers, and across the world is going to be quite different. So, so what mm -hmm. I would say is um, there are certain toxicities that, um, that are quite challenging to diagnose and manage. And um, oncologists and oncology providers need to sort of develop this new and emerging skill set and how to, to mm -hmm. diagnose and manage some of these toxicities. So really, I would say, depending on the comfort level of the oncology provider, they should try to build a team around them of the different specialists who they might, might have to call upon um, in order to um, to make sure that their patient is adequately managed if they develop sort of an unusual side effect or a side effect that the oncology provider themselves may, may reach beyond their sort of oncology toolkit. Um, I think the common toxicities a lot of oncology providers feel quite comfortable with now, such as, you know, underactive or overactive thyroid function, um, pituitary function, skin rashes. I think generally there's quite a good comfort level around diagnosing and managing these toxicities without needing an organ specialist. In my experience, I think sort of the minimum skill set or the minimum group that um, oncologists need around them at the moment really are organ specialists that do a procedure that help us to diagnose um, potentially challenging toxicity or in those toxicities where we may need to escalate immunosuppression beyond corticosteroids and we may not have a huge depth of experience of giving some of those very specialized immunosuppressive agents. So I think particularly in the field of thoracic malignancies, having a friendly neighborhood pulmonologist is a very important thing um, in order to be able to do a bronchoscopy to diagnose or rule out pneumonitis. Um, in those patients getting combination immunotherapy, colitis is quite a common side effect that can occur. And having a gastroenterologist who can do a colonoscopy or a flexible sigmoidoscopy in order to assess um, the colon is, is very important and often needed. So having that in place, um, I think are, are, are two of the major areas. There are toxicities that are very rare, but then when one sees them, one never forgets. And a lot of these mm -hmm. toxicities are very difficult to diagnose and manage. So I think having a neurologist to, to sift out myasthenia gravis that can occur or encephalitis mm -hmm. that can occur from immunotherapy, those are very challenging and certainly not in a routine oncologist's tool set to uh, diagnose mm -hmm. and manage. The other is a cardiologist 
um, for myocarditis. So this is a very rare toxicity, but is actually the most fatal toxicity from combination um, CTLA-4 PD-1. And that certainly cannot be managed by an oncologist because we sometimes may need a heart biopsy. Um, so these mm -hmm. are very specialized procedures that only a cardiologist could do. And then going back to endocrinology, I think we're used to thyroid and pituitary function, but sometimes we can develop uh, type one diabetes where patients can present to the emergency room in a, in a diabetic emergency called DKA, and that often needs specialized endocrinology care. Um, so I think at a minimum, a pulmonologist, an endocrinologist, and a gastroenterologist, most likely also a neurologist. The other common toxicities we see a lot, and probably because of the range, having someone nearby is a dermatologist. So we see quite mm -hmm. a few different types of skin rashes. Some are very easy to manage. Others are very complicated um, mm -hmm. and may require a skin biopsy. So we often call on our dermatologists um, for this and, and that's really a key. Sorry, I keep adding on to the list. The last people I want to add- No, is I'm glad that you are. Yes. The rheumatologists. So, you know, they're joint specialists, but actually they're also specialists in autoimmunity. And that's what this is. We're stimulating an autoimmune response. So sometimes they can be really helpful in telling us what immunosuppressive agent might be best, even beyond those who might have joint problems. So an overarching person that could get involved is a rheumatologist. But I think thankfully, those are a little bit less common than some of the other toxicities and maybe a little bit less scary than the other toxicities that we sometimes see. And I guess, you know, some of the less scary ones would be fatigue. You know, I hear from a lot of patients about this overwhelming fatigue. Um, and I know, you know, going back to, again, some of the, uh, you know, immunotherapies from the past with melanoma, you know, there was always, there was the, you know, regular forms of exercise, the treadmill walking with IL-2 that seemed to, you know, have some kind of an effect. Is there anything for, um, with these, you know, with these immunotherapies of today, is there anything to, that we use to overcome fatigue? Is there anything we could advise patients to do? I mean, I still think being active is really important, Mary. I mean, the, the first thing, of course, when we see fatigue in a patient is we're again, looking at endocrine functioning, right? To make sure we're not missing mm -hmm. anything, whether it's a pituitary issue, an adrenal issue, thyroid issue, et cetera. Once that's excluded, fatigue is a real side effect of therapy. And I think it just depends on how debilitating it is for the patient. Um, again, mm -hmm. exercise is the best, you know, we're not asking, you know, we don't tell them to go out and run marathons, but you know, fatigue begets fatigue, the less you do, the less you'll want to do. Um, and it also is important to remember, you know, depending on their other line, underlying comorbid conditions or medications that may be on that may be con also contributing to fatigue. So unfortunately, no magic bullet per se. Um, there are some stimulants, you know, that can certainly help patients. I typically try to steer away from kind of medicated, um, Kind of stimulants for patients. I think it's better to try mm -hmm. to do things naturally. If the fatigue is extremely debilitating, then it really is a discussion between the patient, family, and the provider as to like what the next steps could be. Um, I don't know if you feel the same way, Jerushka. Yeah, you know, I think the fatigue from immunotherapy certainly, like Michelle, after treating patients, you know, with these treatments for many years, we do appreciate that the fatigue from immunotherapy appears to be quite different than the fatigue that develops from 
cancer in general or other anti-cancer therapies. I think the very important things to do are to rule out the other treatable causes of fatigue that may be immune related, such as thyroid dysfunction or pituitary dysfunction that can often masquerade as immunotherapy fatigue. Um, from there, I think we have a lot of work to do to be able to, to tease out what is immunotherapy fatigue versus those who have fatigue from cancer or maybe prior treatments such as chemotherapy or sort of synergy between them. Um, so those, that's basically what I would say that we need to make sure we ruled out the treatable causes. Um, the NCCN mm -hmm. guidelines and other guidelines would suggest we can treat these with corticosteroids. There is no data to suggest that giving steroids after one has developed an immune toxicity compromises the efficacy of the treatment. It's only mm -hmm. if we give steroids before we start the treatment. So I think that's an important message for patients as well. I think we hear a lot of um, concern about giving steroids and these pot um, potentially abrogating the effect of the immunotherapy. But once someone has a toxicity, treating it with a corticosteroid has not yet been shown to adversely affect the outcomes from the treatment. Thank you. Um, I have a question about pneumonitis um, because, you know, I do see that quite frequently. And I wonder, um, is there a relationship with patients who've had, you know, surgery, radiation, and then they go on to immunotherapy? Does radiation, is that an increased risk factor for developing a pneumonitis while on immunotherapy? So that's a great question. So in, in the first publication of this, which was our publication, the Journal of Clinical Oncology in 2017. This is in patients with lung cancer rather than mesothelioma, but similar enough. We did see um, a positive association between receipt of prior chest radiation and risk of subsequent development of immunotherapy pneumonitis. Um, having said that, I think the quality of the radiation probably matters and the context. So um, subsequent mm -hmm. studies, such as the Pacific study, where patients were giving immunotherapy after chemotherapy and radiation, the, uh, there is a slightly higher incidence of pneumonitis, but it's not appreciably different. But I suppose in that study, the attribution of whether pneumonitis was radiation-related or immune-related was not made. All pneumonitis was, was sort of included. Um, so anecdotally, I would say yes, there does appear to be a relationship with prior radiation. My understanding is that there hasn't, there hasn't been any publications to show that prior surgery is a risk factor necessarily for pneumonitis, but I think that probably needs to be looked at in, in larger data sets. I also think that the surgery mm -hmm. for mesothelioma and the surgery for lung cancer is very different. You know, um, mm -hmm. uh, so the, the surgery for mesothelioma is a, is a much more invasive mm -hmm. surgery. In early um, data of immunotherapy and mesothelioma, there was a concern that lung volume, that patients may have lower lung volume and that their diffusion capacity, which is lower in those with mesothelioma, may be associated with the development of pneumonitis. I think that needs to be looked at quite rigorously in the future. But I know, of course, the data you know, would suggest from, from you know, the approval studies that this was still a safe and very reasonable option for patients with mesothelioma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess, you know, just going back to surgery, then what I'm thinking right now, I hadn't thought about this before, but, you know, now we're doing a lot of testing about, um, you know, interpleural therapies, you know, we're testing a new drug prior to surgery. So now we've irritated the pleura, that space, 
Um, you know, and could that, that also could end up being a risk probably at some point for pneumonitis with immunotherapy. I think, you know, again, large scale studies and, you know, retrospective studies as well in larger cohorts, you know, in diseases where you're able to put a lot of patients on a clinical trial where you have more robust data than you do with mesothelioma. You know, our, our data sets are small because it is a small population and, I think less than 15% of all patients are actually eligible for surgery. So it really limits the scope of what we can study in this particular group. Yeah, I agree with you. Mm -hmm. So is there any, any topic that you think that we should, that we should discuss um, before we end the call? In terms of toxicities all the major management? topics, Mary, to be mm -hmm. honest, you know, the mm -hmm. common toxicities, um, I think duration of therapy, timing, all of these things are important. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in the context of obviously the sort of virtual world we live in, I think it's really important for patients to have their, you know, next of kin, their their primary caregiver attend many of or as many visits as you know as they can, and maybe even attend the education sessions because. Mm -hmm. um, these toxicities are really different. And, and sometimes the patient themselves may not realize a change in their breathing or necessarily a subtle change that um, a primary caregiver may be able to discern. And if they are able you know, to, to identify these things, at least they can bring it to the attention of the oncologist. And I guess that's one thing that we didn't sort of say is that early recognition of immunolated adverse mm -hmm. events is associated with a better outcome. So if we are aware that these toxicities are happening, we'll be able to treat them effectively and patients tend to do better. So, um, you know, just to get the message out to, to patients and their caregivers that um, bringing to the attention of the team anything that is new or concerning is really important. Thank you. And I guess, you know, also having spoken to you and Michelle and Dr. Ford at Hopkins and, you know, understanding now that some of the, you know, some of the tertiary centers do have large teams they've put together, particularly to focus on immunotherapy side effects, that if you're a patient and you're in a small community and you're struggling, uh, not getting the answers that perhaps, you know, a consult with an expert center focusing on these toxicities may, you know, may help to get some relief and uh, some answers as to, you know, whether they can, you know, how to treat it and when to treat it. So um, absolutely, we're part of a global community. And mm -hmm. so I started the immune related mm -hmm. toxicity team at Hopkins and the, the group is is alive and kicking going strong, um, led mm -hmm. by, um, you know, uh, Julie Bramer and Laura Capelli from rheumatology. Um, we have mm -hmm. facilitated, you know, seeing patients from out of state um, in our clinics. And, um, you know, we are we are definitely here to help. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's really a great resource. I've just recently referred a patient to Dr. Capelli. Um, so, uh, you know, I think it's, you know, it's, it's good to have our fingers on, you know, if there is a situation, where can you send that patient? So this way, everyone is being taken care of in the most expert manner possible. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate this. Uh, Michelle, thank you again for joining us. Um, and we may have a follow-up with you. Uh, hopefully, we'll get some more approvals and some other drugs, and uh, we'll probably need your expert help again. So thank you for being with us today. Take care. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Mary.